everybody, and welcome to the Pacific Century, America, China, and the Struggle for the 21st Century, a podcast brought to you by the Hoover Institution with your hosts, John Yu, that's me, and my co-host, good friend, man of letters, Misha Oslin, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Misha, I say you're a man of letters because when I looked up your bio, there were a lot of letters after your name. Say hello, to everybody. Hello, everybody. If you hang around long enough, you just accumulate letters, I guess. <laughs> they don't really mean much, but you just get as many as you can. I'm looking for 26, personally. You would have made a great Asian son, because <laughs> that's all we were told to do when we were little. Uh, so before we start uh, with a lot of the issues involving China and the Pacific that we haven't been able to mention during our uh, month-long hiatus from our last episode, we've got some news from the Hoover Institution. We do, uh, Misha, what's happened? Well, as, as some of the uh, folks who follow Hoover may know, there's been a, uh, a changeover at the top and a search for someone to take Hoover into the next decade. And it was just announced that Condi Rice, former Secretary of State, former uh, National Security Advisor, former Provost at Stanford, has agreed to become the next director of Hoover, which I think is an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, appointment. Um, you know, from the perspective of someone who does foreign policy, uh, to have someone at the top of the institution doing that. What do you think, John? Well, it means that the commissioner of the NFL wasn't open, right? Because isn't that really her secret? Hope in life is to become commissioner of the National Football League. I, I, of course, would place that at number one, too. But I don't think Goodall's going anywhere. So I don't blame her for going with head of the Hoover Institution instead. I, I think for now. I, I certainly hope, though, this means that we will be building the Hoover Institution golf course. Oh, is she good at golf? She is a scratch golfer. Oh, I didn't so. know that. Get your clubs ready, John, uh, because not only do we have to hopefully get on the the links with Condi, we've got to talk about all this stuff that's been roiling Asia as we enter into the 2020s. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'm one of those few uh, Asian middle-aged men in their 50s who doesn't play golf or have any interest in it, thank God. So let's uh, introduce our first issue. Of course, it's on everyone's minds, which is the growing epidemic in the latest coronavirus coming out of China. Uh, the number of cases is escalating rapidly. Uh, at the time of this podcast, it's already gone over 10,000 ca reported cases in China and several I mean, uh, deaths. Uh, and hundreds of this, deaths. Yeah, yeah, hundreds of deaths. And, and this is official figures, which no one in outside China, and I think talking to friends there, no one inside China actually believes. Uh, we've got cases hitting the United States now. We've had uh, today the reports of the first human-to-human -human transmission of the virus in the United States. Uh, the, the virus has, of course, reached a lot of Asian countries like Japan, Korea, the Philippines and Thailand, and maybe even Europe. Uh, it is in Europe. Yeah, it's yeah. everywhere. So, Misha, what do you what do you think about the spread of the virus? What does this reflect about uh, Chinese society, the economy, and the government's response? Well, obviously, neither you nor I, John, are epidemiologists, so we really can't talk about, you know, how this differs from the SARS virus and uh, the uh, the 1919 uh, influenza outbreak. Uh, I think I think what you'll see, though, um, just just to talk about numbers for a second, uh, whenever anybody talks about China, you know, you talk about the economy, you talk about anything. 
we base a lot of our China hype on numbers. And I think we're getting to a point where we all are ready to agree that we can't really trust a lot of the numbers coming out of China. We just don't really know. Uh, and it's not always that it's a case the Chinese themselves are, are obfuscating, but they may not know. So one thing you, you pointed out, there's probably a lot more infection going on than than we know about. If that's the case, though, then the the actual virulence of this is probably a little bit less than than the hype because as as more people you know how you have a better sense of how many have died so if you find out that more and more people are infected that death rate percentage wise starts to go down so it may in the end uh, be incredibly widespread it's all over the world now but it may not be quite as virulent as people are thinking the problem is the challenge as you've mentioned for China uh, is that it's one of of accurate reporting it's it's one of obviously accurate containment and mitigation, uh, and it's one of ensuring the public that uh, the government actually knows what it's doing so that this doesn't politically become a repeat of the SARS virus back in 2003, which almost caused public riots. Mm. Well, I've, I've got two perspectives or two points to add, I think, to just what you've said. One is on my other podcast, the Law Talk podcast, also a Hoover podcast with Richard Epstein and Troy Senek. I am mercilessly mocked for my culinary tastes, where I defend the McRib sandwich. But even this goes beyond anything I would eat, because you saw what caused the virus in the first place, people in China eating bats, bats, bats and snakes. I mean, this is, I can't, I can't even. And then Misha, you sent me a picture of what one of these dishes looked like, which was, it was like some one of these Dracula movies. It was like a little bat coming to get you. And some people look at that and go, gosh, that looks so good. I want to eat that. I, so one point is there's this, these food sources in China, completely unregulated, it seems, where people are eating weird exotic animals. That's part of uh, Chinese tradition. Uh, it's part Korean, Japanese tradition, eating foods that you know people in the West just would never eat. But it's completely unregulated. And you talk to scientists and they say, these kinds of markets where you've got a lot of animals close together, weird animals from the wild, plus domesticated animals, plus human beings. That's just like throwing all, you know, all the DNA of all the diseases into a big pot and stirring it with a gigantic spoon and letting it loose on the world. So that's one. Then the other point, um, I actually have worked with some students here to study the SARS outbreak uh, from a public policy perspective. And one thing that was striking about then, and I, I wonder what you think about this, now, Misha, uh, is although I know you're still trying to get that image of eating bats out of your mind, that is, bat. <laughs> is that, I prefer mine a little on the well done side, but I know friends who like it rare. Um, is uh, one of the big problems about the SARS epidemic from the public policy perspective is because of the authoritarian nature of the Chinese government. Uh, there is a strong reluctance to publicly release information that like, makes the government look bad that reveals problems, um, that uh, questions superiors. Uh, and so uh, the Chinese public health system last time uh, refused to really share information with the rest of the world or with the public about what was happening because government officials didn't want to make the government look bad and they also didn't want to do anything that would re uh, reduce travel and economic activity. And there are accusations that that's happened uh, again. 
Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Michelle? Yeah. Not only that, it's fascinating. What you're seeing is this uh, this political, uh, actually a political backlash in China from from office holders, not just from people on the street. Before I get to that, let me just mention in terms of the, you know, the actual cause. I don't I don't think they actually know exactly what what caused it. And um, you know, if you go when you go to Beijing, you know, you go and uh, these night markets will will sell. Everything. I mean, I've got pictures of bats and centipedes, and and my favorite, the king tarantula. They're all fried up and put on sticks, and it's, it's horrifying. Um, but you know, this this has been going on you for just, so long. You were making me hungry there for a second. The, so. the king tarantulas. I think you were. There are there are other. There actually, John, are other things for sale at these markets. That being a family friendly show, I literally cannot mention. Um, but I will send you the pictures. Um, no, 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 no. They're labeled. They're labeled. You'll 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 you only figure get it out. Fired by the university now. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Not safe for work. Chinese yeah. night market pictures. But um, so I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. And, and I, I do think, um, you know, it's going to take a long time for them to really figure out exactly uh, how this is going. Let me mention one other thing before I get to the to the, um, the political part. Also, China, this is not the only epidemic China's, China's facing. Um, China's facing a, uh, a swine, African swine fever epidemic that has been decimating the swine flocks. Uh, and apparently, uh, it's also uh, facing um, uh, flu influenza, I'm not even sure what it is, with, with chickens again. So uh, there's all sorts of, uh, at least I think with the chickens. But in any case, there's all sorts of problems that China is facing that go to sort of root issues uh, of, of public health and public sanitation. Uh, and this this is a, a weak spot for Xi Jinping. You know, this is the guy who, who has claimed um, uh, the, an unprecedented role in Chinese politics over the, you know, for the past generation or two based on, you know, technocratic competency. Um, what's fascinating is the mayor of Wuhan, John, which is the epicenter of this epidemic, actually criticized Beijing for the uh, the lack of information to some degree. He said it was uh, there was a good Wall Street Journal article on it and some other articles where he said that uh, um, central rules prevented him from really being able to uh, warn the public about the the threat of the virus early on, and therefore people were not able to adequately protect themselves. So you see blame starting to shift because this has, you know, metastasized throughout China, throughout Asia, uh, and has become something that um, really for the government they have staked their legitimacy on being able to control this. And yet, if you look at the um, the exponential increase in it, um, they are they are fighting. I don't want to say a losing battle because eventually they'll, they'll control it, but they are fighting a short term losing battle. And also, don't you think uh, and this gets to a second point about uh, China, not only do the, the Chinese government have this built in bias against uh, releasing information. But does this not, and this goes with your point earlier about the food supply we talked about last time, about the uh, killing of pigs now and now the uh, return of avian flu, it sounds like. Doesn't this raise doubts about, uh, by a regular Chinese, about the competence of the Chinese government? So the, the Chinese uh, nationals that I have met and know when they don't think anyone's listening, right, when they're one of the spies sent over by the Chinese government to listen in and watch the other students isn't around. They say things like uh, they, they they think no one believes the official statistics of the government, that right. uh, no one thinks that the government's actually trying very hard to get medicines to the right places, and that this kind of overreaction of quarantining an 11 million person city is sort of typical More than of a ham-handed uh, efforts by the government that they don't really know what to do. And so this 
increases it just increases more distrust of the Chinese government. Yeah, well, I mean, they've they've quarantined a number of cities. I think it's up to 30 million people that are being quarantined. Of course, now the world is beginning a, a sort of self-imposed quarantine. Um, you know, American and Delta are not flying there. British Airways is not flying there. Cathay uh, Pacific has has shut things down, uh, or at least partially. Um, so yes, you know the, the 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 real problem, John, in what you're saying, of course, is that we've believed the Chinese government for far too long. You know, uh, no one in China believes the numbers. But look, life is overall much better in China than it you know than it was under Mao and and other times. So there's a lot of social capital the government has built up over decades, and it's it, it's not that this is going to crumble overnight because the people think that the government uh, doesn't have a plan. But these things erode confidence over time. So you mentioned SARS. SARS is probably the biggest example of of public uh, distrust over the government and frustration with its incompetence. Uh, there was the tainted milk scandal uh, that killed uh, some babies in China and, and terrified parents. Um, there there was the cover-up over uh, the high-speed rail crash uh, out in the West uh, back in, I think it was about 2000. I forget the date. Someone's going to know it offhand. But anyway, um, all of these things chip chip away, uh, you know, at the the legitimacy that the government has uh, and the willingness of the people to follow rules. So you had reports, for example, as the uh, government is attempting to quarantine Wuhan, uh, people are escaping by any means they can. They're getting on trains, they're getting on planes. Uh, and what you haven't seen or you didn't see initially was the dreaded heavy hand of, you know, a couple of PLA, you know, People's Liberation Army divisions coming in and shutting the entire city down, a la that that movie outbreak or whatever it was called with Dustin Hoffman. You know, you haven't seen that yet, but but you are now seeing increasingly uh, heavy-handed tactics because the initial attempts to control the virus didn't work. Uh, and so it is. it has now spread all throughout China, all throughout Eurasia, and, and everywhere in the world. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. It's um, I you know, just I just a side note, and then we we should turn to our next issue. Is I've been thinking a lot and uh, talking to people, reading a few books on why revolutions start, and looking at the American Revolution, French, Russian, uh, successful revolutions. I mean, successful in overturning the old regime. I wouldn't necessarily say they were successful for the world, <laughs> but one of the things they always say. Uh, the scholars always say is that revolutions happen when there's actually a middle class that has aspirations for more, and they lose faith in the government's ability to provide stability and rules and the opportunity for future growth. And I'm not saying there's going to be a revolution in China, but everything you're talking about, you can see why Xi Jinping's getting worried too, <laughs> because he's sitting there trying to figure out how to keep this huge middle class which is a great benefit for the world, the creation of this middle class, how to keep it happy. And everything, it, and what you just see are signs of more and more incompetence on this creaky, bureaucratic, you know, Maoist government. So well, that's one, Yeah, one, one last comment before we turn, and I think because what you just said is, is important. Uh, there's a couple of things that, that are very threatening to Xi uh, from all of this. Number one, uh, the... the um, the the sort of sense of inevitability of his successful project to rejuvenate the great Chinese nation, you know, things that he's talked about, the Chinese dream. Um, this is not the way you want to start a new decade, uh, a decade in which he was just 
a few years ago reappointed as head of the party, of course, which is most important, but president for life. People focus on that, I think, a little too much. It's more important that he has uh, seemingly consolidated his grip over the party. So this is not the way you want to start a new decade with with this this crisis that, first of all, is going to have some some type of effect that that lasts for a little while, but more importantly, could uh, uh, you know show him up to be uh, just as incompetent uh, or un- unable to really you know. Um, Lash the Hellespont as his as his uh, as his predecessor. So uh, this is this is of great um, you know great worry uh, for him. Uh, I think it also has the potential. Uh, look, it's going to have an economic impact. They're talking about potentially a, a percentage point coming off of the official figures, and uh, we already know that those official figures are dropping every year. So there's going to be economic knock-on effects. You there are reports of American companies and I mean, other global companies beginning to uh, shut down. IKEA shut down all its stores. People have read about that, but you know, companies that are this is going to I didn't accelerate. See that, really? Yeah, no IKEA more Swedish meatballs in China. Well, for now, no, <laughs> those are those are bat meatballs, by the way, John. So don't worry about it. Um, yeah, yeah. For now, they've just they've they've shuttered the stores. I mean, they're going to reopen, but the point is that this actually may. Uh, accelerate the decoupling that we've been talking about in the political context over trade. I mean, there there are companies that are going to be looking at, you know, how much can we trust government uh, ability, public health? You know, do we do, do we operate here or not? And and in any case, in the short run, there's going to be some shifting away. So that so that's another you know that's another danger uh, for for Xi. So th- and then the final thing, of course, and the most interesting uh, would be that if let's just say that things go completely south. Let's just say they they just they fail utterly to contaminate uh, control this. This actually becomes a pandemic of the sort of sci-fi variety. The greatest danger to Xi, John, I think, is not the revolution that you're talking about, though that's certainly possible. It's the the night of the long knives inside the Communist Party. Mm, it's those right. who don't like Xi. It's those who have been sidelined by him. It's the factions that are worried that he is really going to completely neuter them. And this gives them the perfect opportunity to get the knives out and slip them in. So for, for you know, I'm not, clearly we're not saying that's going to happen, but but it is a possibility and that's certainly on his mind. So with that, I would, I would you know, happily close it out and, and turn on to John. What's next? What do we have to talk after Let's that? Talk about exciting the thing. Other big news in uh, the China region is the last election in Taiwan, otherwise known Phenomenal. as the Republic of China, Absolutely. where uh, which, if you were to say, think about a year ago, well, looked was going to go with the KMT party, the Kuomintang, which was, I guess, it traces its way back all the way to uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, the. Right, the evacuation to Taiwan back after the loss in the Chinese Civil War. But the election results, it was uh, just a um, week and a half ago. Uh, the incumbent, Tsai Ing-wen, won uh, by 57 to 38 uh, percent, a crushing, crushing victory for the incumbent, which in their, in their politics we might call the liberal party, perhaps. Um, but she built her campaign around uh, maintain uh, ref- at least not maintaining independence per se, but refusing to move forward to any kind of closer integration politically with China, uh, and capitalizing, I suppose, on what the world has seen going on in Hong Kong, 
as a reason to elect her rather than the Kuomintang party, which uh, seems to be in favor of closer relations with Beijing. So how, how do you read the uh, meaning of those elections and their consequences? Yeah, absolutely, John. If, if there, there are two words that uh, describe or, or, or that, uh, you know, make clear why uh, the DPP uh, won this election. And those two words are Hong and Kong. Um, <laughs> this, you know, until the Hong Kong riots uh, and and demonstrations movement uh, occurred, you know, Tsai Ing-wen was absolutely behind in the polls, um, and she latched onto it, uh, made it clear to the Taiwanese public that this is what your future will look like if uh, if you elect the Kuomintang, uh, which, as you pointed out, uh, you, you know, favor closer ties with with the mainland. Although although the Kuomintang also were critical of of China over Hong Kong, and so, you know, this was this was pure on politics. But it's it was an extraordinary uh, victory, and yet again, you know, an, an example of. Uh, you know, refuting the argument that you cannot have uh, a a democracy in a Chinese nation the way that uh, you know the way that the the mainland would try to have you believe. Um, there's something else about Taiwan though that that's important that links to our first topic, and that is for those who um, there's been a stealth. I don't, I, you have to go back just a touch on history for this, but there's been a stealth movement, so to speak, over the past number of years in which uh, international organizations have become filled with Chinese. Office holders, uh, including major ones, uh, you know, UN sponsored organizations and the like. Um, and a, a lot of people say, well, that's fine. You know, I mean, the, these these are international organizations. You want China to be a responsible stakeholder in the international system. Uh, but what we are seeing is the way in which China is attempting to subvert these organizations to promote its own policy as opposed to international uh, international public goods and precisely to use them to continue to isolate and intimidate Taiwan. And there are two examples immediately. One is the uh, International Convention on, on uh, Airlines, the ICAO, and uh, the way that Taiwan has been uh, increasingly um, uh, isolated through that. And in fact, China has pressured ICAO because uh, of support that's been shown for Taiwan in, in, in social media. But more importantly, John, the World Health Organization. Uh, the Taiwanese are not part of the World Health Organization. Uh, the Chinese have kept them out of the World Health Organization. And um, uh, as this crisis has unfolded, the Chinese have used their influence over the WHO uh, to prevent China, uh, to prevent Taiwan from getting the type of shared information that the rest of the world needs. Um, and uh, not only that, uh, China has also refused to allow Taiwan to evacuate its nationals from China the way that the United States and Japan have been chartering flights. So this is actually getting international uh, attention. Uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan has called uh, for J Taiwan to be led into the WHO. Um, I think um, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada has. Um, but they're not. The China is preventing, in, in in face of what may be one of the greatest pandemics of of this decade. China is preventing Taiwan from getting the information that any civilized nation would pass to another civilized nation. Hmm. Yeah, and it's as you say, it's part of an ongoing effort by uh, mainland China to essentially buy off the few nations that. Uh, still recognize Taiwan uh, to switch their recognition of governments 
to uh, Beijing. But what, what do you think this election means in terms of uh, the long-term viability of Taiwan? Uh, you know, one thing I think we talked about last time about Hong Kong is that what China's doing in Hong Kong, perhaps there's no long-term solution where Hong Kong gets something like independence or uh, where it really can break free of these uh, Beijing's uh, slow effort to increase its control. But what Hong Kong also does, I think, is that it leads to a high level of distrust of China now for any kind of future promises it makes. And so uh, one thing it, it seems to me with Taiwan there were the effects of Hong Kong and the protests on Taiwan, is that why would any Taiwanese government or leadership being democratically elected trust anything mainland China says or agrees to in the future? And so you, if you are Taiwan, why don't you look in the crystal ball and you say, gosh, no matter what agreement we sign, no matter what promises Beijing makes, what's to stop them from turning us into another Hong Kong, say, 10, 20 years from now, just like they promised the British they would respect uh, uh, you know, British law and self-government Hong Kong, and now look what you've got going on in the streets there. So uh, yeah, I, it seems to me, I just guess what you think, that the Taiwanese elections, Taiwanese incumbent government are acting perfectly rationally based on now China's track record of breaking its word and proving unable to reach any kind of uh, you know, long-term accommodation uh, by making agreements with other countries. You know, this is all part, as you point, a lot of other things China's been doing, the Great China thing, what's been doing the South China Seas, and so on. But the more it breaks international agreements, the more it goes its own way, the less uh, countries will cooperate with it. Like Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I can't agree more. I would say, though, that you know, and we talked about it a lot. For those who who were expecting some sort of move into Hong Kong by the the Chinese forces proper, be they you know paramilitary, police, or or the army, um, you know, and that hasn't happened. And and China has, you know, it looked for a while uh, like anything could go. And and you have to give uh, Beijing some some credit in the sense. Now I don't want to say credit, but you know they 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 played it well. I think we have to recognize that they played things fairly well in Hong Kong, and they were patient enough to wait for the uh, you know the the protests to begin moderating on on their own accord. It's still they're still flaring up. It's it's not over, but you know we're we're months past you know millions of people in the streets. Nonetheless, your point I think is a very valid one. It's clearly what propelled Tsai Ing-wen to uh, uh, this electoral victory, which is that uh, this you're looking into you're looking into your future. Now, you know it's very complicated on on Taiwan. Um, you know the older generation was much more in favor of reunification because they remembered uh, you know life on the mainland. The younger generation seems to be um, far less interested uh, in in. Uh, reunification more, you know, they have a Taiwanese identity, so they don't think of themselves as Chinese. They think of themselves as, uh, as Taiwanese. Um, and yet at the same time, um, there still is an indication that very few people want to upset the status quo. You know, the status quo, which has now gone on uh, for for 70 years, uh, and including the 40-year the status quo uh, with the U.S. or, you know, normalization between the U.S. and China, that's what is called strategic ambiguity. Um, 
Taiwan faces some other problems too, by the way. I mean, it, you know, they are are moving towards a um, uh, moving away from national conscription and towards a, a, a volunteer army that's going to be far more expensive and, and in many ways probably less effective than than what they need uh, and what they have. On the other hand, the Trump administration has gone farther than any administration. Uh, in uh, increasing high-level ties and providing, um, you know, agreeing to make arms sales that that would significantly upgrade the, the Taiwanese military, including advanced F-16s. So, you know, it's a best of times, worst of times in certain ways. You have a far more aggressive China, a far more assertive China, one that has made very clear that any move on the part of Taiwan towards independence will be met with with military force. And yet you have a Taiwan that itself is more confident, is clearly electorally stable, and right now has a U.S. administration that is really willing to uh, explore the, the the far boundaries of how far you can go in normalizing relations, which I think we should continue to do. Hmm, good point. So uh, I think we have only a little bit of time uh, to talk about uh, one last issue. Of course, that's before you and I both talk about our mothers and what they think of us and our shows, because that's what Asians not, really want to hear. Not about. much, John, because we haven't been doing the show, so they haven't been thinking much about us at all. Oh, come on now. Mom's always thinking about what we're doing. So um, It's always, what have you done for me lately, isn't it? <laughs> So there's uh, one last uh, major piece of news in uh, U.S.-China relations that we should get to, which is the uh, signing of what's called the Stage 1 trade deal between the U.S. and China. Uh, it uh, explicitly put off uh, deeper structural issues between the U.S. and China, such as uh, you know permanent protections for intellectual property, uh, permanent rules on joint ventures and technology transfer, and uh, tried to reach an accommodation uh, to end the trade war. Now, interestingly, uh, the United States did not go back to the status quo ante. In other words, the Trump administration did not return all the tariffs back to on Chinese imports back to where they had been before the trade war started. Uh, at the same time, uh, China agreed to make certain purchases uh, of agricultural products, I think, primarily, but uh, agreed, uh, but didn't make that many other commitments, it seems to me, um, other than uh, to, you know, both sides to stop increasing tariffs, stop increasing new kinds of trade barriers, uh, but essentially to freeze what they were doing. Uh, so what do you what do you read? What's your take on this stage one trade agreement? What is it? What's what's its meaning? What do you think is going to happen in the future? Well, there's there's a lot of um, yeah, there's there's reporting and, and analysis, John, on both sides. Um, you know, there are, are reports that if you look at the actual um, text uh, of the of the agreement, that it, it's really China that um, made most of the concessions. Uh, in terms of what it would and, and would not do, and you know, agreed to supposedly binding mechanisms, meaning you know the the, the snapback on on tariffs uh, and the like. There are other arguments that look. Um, this barely gets um, U.S. trade back to uh, you know to China buying uh, at levels where it was before the tariffs. Right, we're still we're still low, and so so China has not uh, fully uh, committed to opening up its its markets. Um, 
and uh, therefore, you know, this is less of a win. Uh, and and yet again, there are those who who are saying, yeah, but the the administration held pretty firm on on a lot of the uh, a lot of the. Um, the tariffs. I think you know, probably stepping back is a, is a good way to look at it. The, the 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 tariff war created an enormous amount of of uh, heat and light, and yet how much it was uh, actually changing things because it affected a, a relatively overall a relatively small amount of trade for both countries. Meaning it was it affected U.S. China trade, but if you look at it in the broad aggregate of trade, it was it was not all that significant, and and therefore you can argue at least on the US side it had very negligible economic impact and so the you know China I think has been affected much more by it but and so from that perspective it was a better strategic gamble on the part of the US and therefore the stage 1 agreement um is one that that sort of locks in uh, this U.S. advantage in some way, if you want to put it like that, and so uh, it's it's of a benefit uh, to the U.S. to have uh, been seen as as reaching agreement uh, that people don't feel, or most most I guess most people don't feel was a was a cave, uh, and and yet preserves the political equilibrium between the two countries, so that you don't actually have a. A, a worsening of relations. You don't actually have them, you know, pulling the trigger on much more severe tariffs or or things like that. So, the proof is in the the, the eating of the pudding and and whether or not uh, the Chinese actually fulfill uh, what they promised to do in the phase one agreement. And as you noted initially, in terms of structural issues, whether you can potentially get to uh, a phase two agreement that that is more meaningful. I think the thing to watch for instead of that is the the broader decoupling, um, which is not necessarily a conscious or, or not entirely a conscious policy. It's been happening because of a growing lack of competitiveness on China's part and rising uh, wages and the like. It's happening because other countries are, are getting better at at filling certain niches that or, or certain roles that China used to used to do. Uh, it will be pushed in part by uh, by the um, coronavirus. I mean, the point is that no matter what the two sides do, it's the the, the sort of meta structural global economic relationship that I think we that we have to look at. If the U.S. is able to get a free trade agreement with the U.K., if it's able to get one with Japan, um, all of this is going to impact the way that we look at China's weight in uh, the U.S. economic system, and I think overall. Uh, it's going to probably make more changes from that process or those processes than necessarily from something that's negotiated. Yeah, I, I confess I'm a free trader. I, I think uh, there are few laws in social science that are like scientific laws, but one of them is the law of comparative advantage by <laughs> you know Ricardo and the uh, idea that trade actually enhances social welfare by allowing for specialization of labor and effort just uh, it just makes complete sense. So to me, the ideal outcome would be a restoration of free trade between the U.S. and China. But as you say, Misha, the problem is that you have to have certain 
basic ground rules, just like we have ground rules in our own markets, in our own economy. You can't have people stealing things <laughs> from each other uh, the way Chinese has, China has stolen intellectual property and continues to. I mean, there were just these stories this week about the chairman of the Harvard Chemistry Department, for all, of all yep. people, being prosecuted for hiding money that was being given to him by the Chinese government. I mean, it's, uh, I, I, that's, this is going on right now. This doesn't show any. It doesn't show signs of China's uh, taking its foot off the pedal in its efforts to steal intellectual property from the United States. Um, but you, you, know, you have to have some of these basic ground rules in order for the markets to function effectively, which includes property rights and rules against theft. And as we move into this, you know, post-industrial economy, information and software and computers and high technology are going to be the most valuable forms of economic property. So that's one. And then the second thing, I, I totally agree with you, Misha. If you were, if, even if you're a free trader like me, uh, and you don't like things like managed trade where com countries just commit to buying certain amounts of uh, products like China in this agreement, I think, promises to buy something like $200 billion in U.S. products over the next uh, two years, three years, that that's not the way to go. Uh, what you want is competition. And so I, I agree, the way to do it is to get the other countries that believe in free trade together, like Western Europe or the European Union, and like the countries that have already signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Organize with them first, not by raising tariffs on them, but by right, agreeing on free trade with them as a gigantic market, and then going back to China in a unified way and saying, uh, look, you have to change your ways or you don't get to trade with all of us, not just the United States, which happens to be picking fights with its allies. Yeah, um, I, I certainly uh, I agree with what you're saying. I, I probably come out more uh, these days on the 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 sense that you've got you've got to take a holistic view of what free trade is doing to your society um that uh, to ignore the heartland in favor of the globalized approach uh, is is simply going at some point to have political and economic knock-on effects that are not that are not healthy and and so I think we're in the beginning of a of a big and, and it, it is absolutely due in part to President Trump, but it's also due to Democrats in Congress who've been arguing this for a while. I think we're at the beginning of a reassessment of of really what, trade looks like, uh, you know, in the next generation. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to the idea, simply because it's not politically palatable, that it, it's just a, a open, free-for-all the way it's been. Um, I think there, whether you want to call it managed trade, whether you want to call it, um, you know, trade that, that focuses first on, on national, making sure that national effects are um, as benign as possible, meaning you don't just enrich those who can participate in a globalized economy, but you protect those who are harmed by being in a globalized economy. I think all of that is just starting to to get uh, negotiated. Um, and it, you know, certainly if um, any of the the Democrats win, I think that's going to be at the top of their uh, agendas. But for for President Trump, it's probably going to be at the at the top of his agenda, especially in a in a second term when, like all presidents, he will be unleashed, so to speak. And we'll see, you know, what what they feel is the art of the possible on on really 
coming up with something that's that's different. Um, we're not there yet. And again, then you're overtaken by some of these these larger structural issues uh, with with China. I think in 10 years, we're going to look at China. It's going to be a far less, it's going to be very important, but it's going to be far less dominating in the, the global picture than it is today, simply because of the aging of the Chinese economy, because of uh, uh, other countries that, again, are, are getting better at doing things that once China could only do. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, the politicians are reactive. Uh, they were certainly reactive to popular populist uh, uh, populist anger over free trade. So I think they'll be reactive when you start seeing the the, the natural um, trading system adjusting to new to new equilibria uh, that we may be slow on picking up on. Uh, and actually, speaking of that, John, because I know we're winding down, uh, it has nothing to do with Asia inherently, but uh, all of that about trade and populism. Happy Brexit Day. <laughs> Oh, it's just going to be a new uh, holiday we have to add on our calendars. In my household, it is. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of uh, Boris Johnson, and I'm really curious to see how Brexit turns out. I, yeah, happy Brexit. To, should we say, call it happy Brexit to you? Like, uh, I don't know what the – like, it's like, good day, mate, in <laughs> Australia. <laughs> well – uh, you know, this is, a, I think, a, Misha, a bit a great show, and um, we don't have uh, much more time. So um, happy 2020 to you. Happy Year of the Rat to you, uh, Misha. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Pacific Century. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.